1: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I'm the Assistant Director here at the Hendricks Center. And today we're going to be talking about creation care, and we're joined by Jonathan Moo who is a professor of New Testament and environmental studies, not something you see often combined, and occupies the Lindemann chair at Whitworth University. And he he specializes in the intersection between biblical and ecological studies. So thank you so much for joining us today, Jonathan.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So why don't we just start by you telling us a bit about yourself and how you ended up interested in this intersection of two topics that very much, as we will discuss today, are relevant to one another, but often don't seem to (laughs) be represented in the academy, I guess I could say.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I grew up with just a love of the outdoors, I guess, and of fishing and hunting and hiking and um, spending time in creation. And I grew up in a Christian family, um, but I don't know how much I really connected those two things, my love of the outdoors and of the created world um, with my faith. Um, But in any case, I so loved nature that I wanted to be a biologist. And so Mm -hmm. after a year of actually studying theology in Chicago, um, I went out west where I'd wanted to go since I was a kid growing up in Chicago, uh, lived in Utah and worked on a master's in wildlife biology. And during that time, um, I mean, things that I already was aware of a bit as an undergraduate, just the challenges facing life on earth became more and more evident to me. Um, And even among my biologist friends, uh, you know, any system that they're studying, you kind of inevitably become passionate about. If you're attentive to something, you develop a certain love for it. Um, and so often living with kind of the sorrow of loss that we experience in this time in history, um, of seeing species disappearing and habitat being degraded and reduced, um, led to kind of a wrestling for me about what does the Christian faith have to say to that? Um, and in my Christian context at the time, often... Well, actually, nearly always it just wasn't talked about. Um, it, we didn't. Our gospel was pretty focused, at least for in my context, on our relationship with God and of the the gift of of salvation that we have in Christ and how that transforms us and how it transforms us in a relationship with God and with each other. Uh, but there wasn't kind of an attentiveness to the wider context of the gospel that I've since become compelled by um, that includes the whole of the cosmos, all of creation, um, and that invites us into a different way of relating to the created world. Um, at the same time, I maybe more information than you're looking for, I guess, but I went through a real crisis in my faith, um, among people who I really respected, who would kind of identify as born-again pagans or as atheists, um, my sci- many of my scientific colleagues, a church context that could be wonderful and rich and supportive, but perhaps not just thinking about these sorts of things, how science and faith go together. Um, and ultimately, of course, as most crises in faith, really just my own, I think, <laughs> unfaithfulness and probably just not dealing with things that I needed to deal with. Um, But what that led to was in the process of studying biology, and I just loved my study of biology and spending much of my time in the mountains, um, I, because of my crisis in faith, started picking up theologians again. Um, And so picked up Aquinas and C.S. Lewis and um, began to recognize what an attenuated view of the world I had come to have, I think, um, and was kind of given back the gift of this vision of the world and all of its wonder and beauty and enchantment, I think almost is the word I'd use for it, that we see when we see it in the lens of Christ. Um, and so, that through that whole process, kind of wrestling with what my calling was as a biologist, as someone who had also studied English literature and loved the humanities and loved that year of theology I'd had in Chicago before I had moved west. Um, Really just, I, there was lots of questions I wanted to explore about science and faith, um, about the environment and Christianity. Um, and so I ended up going to seminary at Gordon-Conwell um, and studied Old Testament and New Testament there and had some just fantastic teachers and mentors who... Uh, helped me learn to study scripture and um, a, a good friend and mentor called Sean McDonough, especially who really emphasized the centrality, the theme of new creation in scripture and the way in which that embraces the whole of creation. And so that lead, helped me begin to make some of the connections that perhaps I hadn't made before between my Christian faith and these other things that I was passionate about. Um, and then I went on to do a PhD in early Judaism and the New Testament uh, in the University of Cambridge. And the focus of that was actually trying to understand how um, ancient Judaism and the New Testament understands the created world and the natural world. Um, What role does that play? Um, And I was working in apocalyptic texts, which are often thought of any book (laughs) in the New Testament, for example, or just in, in early literature, to be the books that kind of give up hope for this world. Um, but I found just the reverse. The reason I was drawn to these texts in the first place was partly because they're literary style and they're kind of imaginative worlds they create, um, but also because they had so much to say about nature. Um, and so even if sometimes it's an uproar and upheaval, they're very interested in the created world. You even get a sort of bizarre pseudoscience in some of the Jewish apocalyptic texts that are kind of The seer is being taken on a tour of heaven and earth and is looking at all parts of the created world. And what you discern there is a real interest in it. Um, And actually a sense often that where the world of humanity is so often disordered um, and fails to honor God as creator, um, the created world goes on being what it was created to be bringing glory to God. It's, of course, a prophetic theme. You have it in Isaiah and elsewhere, but then it shows up uh, in these apocalyptic texts again. And so it was a kind of a fascinating entry into thinking about what my later focus has been, which is sort of biblical theology of creation um, by focusing in these texts. Um, And while I was in Cambridge, I had this... (sighs) this rather extraordinary opportunity, and I think it was my second year just of my PhD, the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, um, which was founded in Cambridge, um, not shortly before that time, was looking for someone to do research um, and research in ecology and scripture and Christianity. And I can still remember the conversation I had with my wife, who was working at a church at the time uh, in Cambridge, and she had phoned me and said she'd heard about this from our vicar, um, that this institute was looking for that. And I, in my usual trusting way said, well, there's no way they're gonna be interested in someone who really takes scripture seriously because usually science and religion discussions are done at the philosophical or theological level. And she said, no, they actually want someone who's doing that. and I said they're probably not going to be interested in someone who, um, you know, who has such a high view of Scripture as I do either. You know, I mean, they're just not going to—they're going to want someone who's perhaps seen as more liberal or, or something. Said so, no, they actually really would love to have someone who's deeply rooted in orthodox <laughs> Christian faith. Um, and I said, of course, I'm in the middle of my PhD. There's no way they're going to hire me. Um, she said, we well, should at least try. <laughs> and so I did. And in the end, by God's grace, I got hired on. Before, long before I finished my PhD, actually, to begin a research post with the Faraday Institute um, that became a full-time thing for a number of years after my PhD, um, alongside doing some teaching there. And there... Many of the questions that I had had as an undergraduate, and especially in that crisis of faith I had gone through, I was able to put to you know Nobel Prize winning scientists because this was a place in Cambridge that attracted many of the best scientists who had a faith of their own and who thought about how do they connect this to their Christian faith. Um, and so it was just a delightful and productive and fruitful time for me doing this kind of deep textual study in Jewish apocalypses and Romans and the book of Revelation. Um, talking to scientists and philosophers of religion and theologians about how we put faith and science together, um, while working on this project with um, my colleague, uh, Bob White, who's a geophysicist in the University of Cambridge, thinking about Christianity and ecology and the environment. Um, and so, it's I sometimes tell my students this story <laughs> because all the way through my life it just felt like going one direction banging up against a wall and going some other direction not really sure what's going to happen but in retrospect you can see how God often weaves things together in ways that could never have anticipated and that have just been so rich um, and so then at the end of those years uh, Whitworth University where I am now Um, was looking for a biblical scholar and is a place like, I guess, uh, uh, you know, a number of perhaps Christian liberal arts universities is really committed to thinking about how we connect Christian faith um, to the whole of life. And so they were interested in the fact that I was trying to combine biblical scholarship with science and ecology, um, and has provided me just an incredible context in which to do that with a wide diversity of students, with colleagues from across the disciplines here. Um, We're engaged in a number of projects together, and it's just such a rich and enlivening uh, place to do this kind of thing. But you're rare. You're right that it's it's somewhat rare to get to do this, <laughs> to be in a the theology department, doing biblical studies, but then also spending a lot of time with my biology and political science colleagues, thinking uh, more broadly about environmental issues. Um, but it's, it's just a great joy for me.
1: Well, that's fantastic. What a fascinating story. <laughs> that's really, uh, yeah, that's interesting. You know, I I hadn't. I think it's interesting that you said you were. You know, kind of just grew up outdoors and loving the outdoors and that kind of thing and that's part at least obviously there's much more to your story but there's that's part of where this love for creation and and contemplation of creation and its role in God's plan and in his kingdom and I think that's so interesting because I I share something similar in that I was raised in a home that I'm I I tell my four-year-old now, when I was four years old, I was hiking mountains and, (laughs) you know, they were, you know, carry my backpack at times. And then other times I get a little, you need to suck it up, talk, (laughs) and I just keep hiking. (laughs) And, and so, and, and to his credit, my grandfather was really the one that fostered that in our whole family and, you know, very much the, you know, you pack out all of your trash and you leave everything cleaner or exactly like you found it. And, you know, we have to be careful with the earth. And, you know, I mean, he was this salty outdoorsman who fought in World War Two. You know, there's nothing remotely, you know, sometimes that these kinds of conversations can get labeled liberal or that kind of thing. There's nothing remotely liberal or anything about him, West coast, (laughs) anything (laughs) about him, you know, he's this Kansan and, um, and he just, you know, instilled in us this deep care for creation and, and concern for its health and a recognition that if it's not healthy, we're not healthy, and we have this responsibility. And so I just love the work that you do, and we're so thrilled, again, to have you here. And what an interesting story how you kind of got to where you are. Clearly, the Lord was with you, um, and it continues to be. (laughs) But what do you—so you actually have a book called Creation Care— and and you've talked about that even in your terminal as you're t- telling your story so what do we mean when we talk about caring for creation is that just another way of saying environmentalism you know <laughs> for those people who might be a little bit more suspicious of this conversation what do, what are we talking about when we are talking about creation care
2: well, that's a good question yeah it, And I think you can actually call it different things. You know, Lauren Wilkinson called it earth keeping, which isn't a bad way to describe it either. I actually don't like the word environment, though, uh, as it turns out. And one of my best friends here on campus, he's a biologist. And we both, you know, along with a couple of others, help run our environmental studies program and our environmental (laughs) science program. But he doesn't like the word. He refuses to be called an environmentalist. Um, And there's different reasons for that. Some of it might be the political connotation that sometimes has for him, at least. Um, But... For me, the biggest problem is it suggests that there's us and then there's everything outside of us that is the environment. Um, And it fails to capture the biblical picture of the reality that we are creatures among other creatures, that we belong to creation. On the God-creation dualism, which is is actually a dualism, we stand on the creature side of that, um, a part of the rest of the created world. And by naming it a creation, we're also saying something really important. We're saying that this isn't simply happenstance that we are here, that the world exists, but rather this is the free act of God to create something other than God, to create, to create a creation. Um, And so I think it's a, That's why I like creation care um, as a term is because it reminds us of what the nature of what it is that we might care about and care for. Um, This is God's creation. It belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. And it's not simply the environment outside of us. And perhaps we'll go on to talk about this later, but it's one of the reasons I dislike trying to hold up our care for our sisters and brothers, our fellow human beings, against our care for the rest of the created world. Um, I think too often that is used to justify a lack of imagination and a lack of um, living into our calling to be cares for God's creation. And of course, that's the other part of that term that creation care is that um, I think, you know, my father and I wrote this book together and I think he he says, um, you know, on the one hand, we just want to care about creation. Like why should we care about it at all? Um, and obviously in certain versions of the Christian faith that some of us have inherited, there can be a kind of neglect to care about the created world. Like, it's a distraction from caring for people, from proclaiming the gospel, from doing all those all those things that we are called to do. So, why should we care about creation at all? That's something we'll need to perhaps talk about a bit. Um, but ultimately, one of the reasons we should care about creation is that I believe God entrusts us with responsibility for its care, and that care is probably the best way to capture the complex of ways that Scripture describes human beings' relationship with the rest of the created world, which ranges from rule over creation, or over actually other creatures, if we're going to be precise, uh, in Genesis 1, to working and keeping the ground uh, where Adam and Eve are placed in Genesis chapter 2, um, to the way that that rule over creation, over other creatures is unpacked for us then in the rest of Scripture, Um, and that takes us right to the other end of the Bible, to Revelation, um, where the promise for those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb is that they will reign on earth, uh, that that rule is restored. Our role as priests and rulers in creation is given back to us in Christ. Um, And so creation care, I think, um, at least is an attempt to capture all of that and to say something rather a lot more than even caring for the environment or environmentalism or something. Um, and that hopefully is perhaps not as hostage either, like you alluded to, to p- particular political ideologies. Um, I'm very happy to call myself an environmentalist in the right context if I can explain what that means. Uh, but I far mm-hmm. prefer the term creation care.
1: And that's interesting. They, I, I believe it's Ian McFarland talks about... Um, he he really kind of hammers away at the idea, similar to what you were saying about this hierarchy that we we seem to have in in our mind about God's creation, and and he says, no no, we're all called out ones. We have all been called out of nothingness, you know, by God, and so, you know, and, and not to say that it's all the same, you know, and that kind of thing. But but it, to to your point, this idea that. No, <laughs> we are responsible, and we are among God's creation, and we have to remember that. so you t- you did talk about caring about creation. And so let's talk let's talk first about caring about creation, and then we can talk about caring for creation, or if it just weaves in and out of each other, then we could do that too. So why should we care about creation? You said, um, essentially stewardship of the the role and responsibilities that God has given us, that's one thing that you just mentioned. Why else do you how else do you communicate um to those those around you why we should care
2: um I think the first reason and the most important one is it's an expression of our love for God um, because God cares about creation you know you it's this runs right through the whole of scripture and it's what I was suggesting earlier about. The way in which my immersion in reading scripture that came in seminary broadened my View of what the gospel is all about and scripture is all about that includes all things. And that goes right from Genesis to Revelation. So in Genesis, we learn, you know, one of the most important things we learn in Genesis chapter one. And, you know, one of the great sadnesses of the science and religion conflict, that's it's sometimes portrayed to us, and the debate about evolution and Christian faith, is it distracts us from the very clear things that we all can agree are taught to us in the early chapters of Genesis. Um, that they just, they're actually the purposes of the text, whatever else else we might say about um, evolution, for example. And what do we learn? Um, Well, seven times we're told that the world is good. Um, And at the completion of all the things that are made, it is very good. Um, It's not just good with us showing up on the scene, but the rest of creation, God sees and names as good in and of itself. Um, And it's actually interesting to me that right there, that first chapter of Genesis, we get a distinctive Christian contribution to contemporary environmental ethics. So I teach environmental ethics here, among other things. And We spend sometimes a ridiculous amount of time debating about, do other creatures, does the rest of creation have intrinsic worth, um, worth in and of itself? Um, Well, as it turns out, Christians actually have an answer to that question. Um, And we actually may not want to call it intrinsic, um, but it has worth that is given to other creatures apart from ourselves because other creatures relate to God. Um, and God sees them and sees them as good. God sees God's whole creation and sees it as good. Um, And so, right there, we suddenly have a reason to care about it, because God cares about it. Um, We see in the Psalms the way all of non-human creation worships and praises and glorifies God. Um, You know, and you get this wonderful conclusion like a Psalm 148, where then at the very end, we turn up and we become members of this cosmic choir that's offering praise to God by taking up our appropriate place within creation um, and glorifying God like the rest of the world does just by being itself. Um, and that interest in creation, which of course is so prominent in the prophets, um, in which creation and human beings, God's people, Israel, are linked together in this cosmic covenant, um, that doesn't go away in the New Testament Um, we, we can go simply to Jesus and to see the Jesus who, who is Jesus. First of all, he is God who has taken on flesh, God incarnate. Um, if we, I sometimes think I could just start there and perhaps it's actually a better place to start to develop a Christian doctrine of creation because there's no more radical Mm -hmm. affirmation of the goodness of this material world, and that God's self should take upon the material stuff of this creation. Um, it, again, it does away with any sort of a demeaning or diminishment of material existence as bad or as evil. Um, it shows us that this create, created world um, can, can actually be a vehicle for dis- displaying the divine. Um, And uh, there's a lot to be said there. I mean, if we take seriously Jesus' incarnation as something that binds himself, not just to human beings, but to all creatures, to all flesh, you know, think I sometimes... This perhaps sounds heretical or something, but it's not at all. I think it's actually deeply biblical. You know, much of Jesus's genetic material would have been made up of gut bacteria, as it is for every human being. If Jesus is truly a a full human being, he shares in what it is to be a human being, Um, and so has bound God's self to the whole of the created world. And because of that, the New Testament writers unpack the significance of Jesus's death and resurrection as something that extends to the whole of the created world. Um, now, we'll have to come back and talk about the distinctiveness of human beings in this story who stand at the center of the need of redemption and the rest of creation's fate tied to us. But for the time being, just notice that those texts that describe God's what God accomplishes in the cross and resurrection and in the new creation that is assured by that, it is the reconciliation of all things, of all of creation, a new heavens and a new earth, which, where everything is made new. Um, not all new things are made, the rest of it thrown out, but rather this world is made new, um, is restored um, to glorify God, which is what we'd expect if God actually comes in the incarnation to go to death on a cross and then raises in physical resurrection um, to reign over it in Jesus Christ. Um, it's it's what we would expect of the story. So God's purposes have encompassed the whole of creation from the beginning to the very end. And so that would give us reason to care about it because God cares about it. Um, and the second reason, and perhaps we can come to this, of course, is we recognize, especially today, that we cannot love our neighbor. Um, we think about Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets to love God and love neighbor. If we don't care for the created world of which they and of which we are also a part, um, we are bound to the rest of creation. And that's part of the goodness of created life.
1: So we, c- we should care about and for creation because we love God. And we're supposed to love God and we're supposed to love others, like you said. And, and part of loving God is, you know, respecting what he has himself cared about and asked us to care for. So in obedience, as well as uh, you mentioned the glory, the glory, you know, how creation glorifies him. And if we are allowing an unhealthy creation and or even fostering unhealthy creation, then we are not only disregarding what God has given us and our responsibilities or what God has created, not even just given us what he has created and our responsibility to it. But we're also in a way stifling God's glory, you know, because we're stifling creation. And so we don't want to do that as believers either. And then obviously loving one another. So we talked, you, you did talk through several of the themes in scripture that you've seen and so why don't we go back to what you said about um, coming back to how we should understand man being in the middle of all of that (laughs) so go ahead and, and talk and speak to us about that especially within what scripture has to say and how it's related to creation and our approach to creation care
2: Thank you. I've actually been thinking about this recently again, um, just because there's been a lot of um, philosophers writing about how living in what they call the Anthropocene, this age of humanity, where they consider human beings to have become a geological force, and and in fact, the dominant geological force in our time. Um, And I have my hesitations about naming this era that, but it's just trying to reflect what has become a reality. has, has led a lot of people to say we need to rethink what it is to be a human being and our relationship to the natural world. And this sounds overly apologetic. And so there, I wanted to say it in every context, but I sometimes want to raise my hand and say, you know, the Christian scriptures got there already. Um, because what does scripture tell us? It tells us, first of all, something that perhaps the Enlightenment led too many of us to forget, that we are one creature among others we are bound to the rest of creation. You know, even the Genesis creation story, I try to help uh, students recognize when we read the narrative that I think the climate, the, the high point of this narrative is God's rest on the seventh day, sitting down enthroned over all that God has made. But we always wanna focus on human beings that do get particular attention. There's a lengthy description of our creation, but we're created on the same day as other land animals. Um, we, we belong to other land animals are created on the same day as they are. Um, and you can go through the prophets, um, you can go to uh, 1 Peter, you can go to James for regular reminders that human beings are, on the one hand, deeply insignificant, uh, here today and gone tomorrow, um, like the flowers of the field, uh, the grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of the Lord stands forever, but we don't. We're mortal, transient, insignificant human beings. It's no wonder that the psalmist can look up at the immensity of space and say, what are human beings that you care about them? Um, what could we possibly matter in the vast expanse of things? Um, James puts it most dramatically uh, when James uh, says that we are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And so why do we make all these plans without any reference to God, thinking tomorrow I'm going to do this or that and make money for myself? Um, if that's done without reference to God, it's it's just meaningless. It's empty. Um, and so we don't have to go far in Scripture to see our insignificance and the fact that we are indeed on the creaturely side of the creator creation uh, divide. Um, and yet, of course, scripture wants to say something more than that. Um, so I think about Psalm 103, where you get one of these texts that reminds us of how insignificant we are, but is actually framed by God's deep love and concern for us. And I think what, what I love about that text, I should maybe turn to it to read it precisely, but what I love about this text is that it reminds us that our significance, our value, and our worth doesn't come from things that are intrinsic to ourselves, but rather God's decision to enter into a particular relationship with us and to give us a particular responsibility within God's creation. Um, I take it that that's actually what is meant by the image of God in Genesis. And obviously, it's interesting, the image of God language turns up only a handful of times in Scripture. um, and ultimately, I think we want to go to Christ if we want to know what the image of God looks like. Uh, but it has led to, you know, endless speculation. And often the speculation begins by looking at ourselves and the world around us and say, well, what makes us different? Um, there's a certain reasonableness to that, right? I, this is one of the things that the Anthropocene has taught us. Well, there is something different about human beings today in our ability to impact the rest of the world and our ability to plan and to have purposes that we can even reflect on our purposes. That's something other creatures don't do. So I'm happy to say there are things, perhaps degrees of difference, but maybe even more than that, that make us different from other creatures. But I don't think that's actually what Scripture is so interested in, um, that has set us among other creatures in the community of creation, but has said that we indeed, perhaps partly because of those abilities, have a distinctive way of relating to God. Um, we are relational creatures created male and female. You know, it's the only time in the Genesis 1 narrative where God also says, let us create human beings in, in the image of God. Um, and Christians have, um, from early times, seen there as you know, a, a hidden pointer to the God's existence in three persons already. God and perfect relationship of love in God's self that now calls us into particular relationship with God as relational beings who will relate to God in a distinctive way. Other creatures, as I've already suggested, glorify, worship God by being themselves, by fulfilling the the ends that they've been created to fulfill. We are given a particular responsibility in creation to rule over other creatures um, and a the ability to respond to God in obedience or not, as we learn in the narrative that follows in the Garden of Eden. Um, Do we take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or do we look to God for our identity and for our source of what is good and for what life is? Um, And of course, the tragic story is us turning away from that and reaping death and brokenness and um, distance as a result. But that makes us distinctive, um, that we relate to God in a particular way, and we have this particular responsibility um, of care for other creatures, um, such that by the time we get to the prophets um, and to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, for example, the fate of the whole creation is bound up to us. So I, you know, I mentioned Psalm 8 earlier, where the psalmist looks up at the expanse of heavens and can't imagine how we matter at all. And, you know, I, sometimes with our abilities today with physics and our, our um study of the cosmos and our sense of the size of the universe, we can be very struck by our insignificance. Um, And I think that's right, and that's healthy, and that's good, actually. Um, But I don't think it's necessarily any different than a Middle Eastern shepherd sitting out on a rock looking up at an endless starry sky, a sky with more stars than we will ever see um, looking up from our earth today, um, would feel? That vulnerability, that fragility, um, that sense of what can I possibly matter? That's a it's an ancient question. It's one we ask again today, but it's no different than that one. And of course, the answer that the psalmist gets is that um, human beings matter profoundly. Why? Because God has put all creatures under the dominion of the Son of Man, human beings, Um The psalmist is just echoing the Genesis creation story here. And I think for the psalmist, I mean, this has to be just a, it's an article of faith as much as anything else, right? In what sense, for example, are those things that swim through the paths of the sea under the dominion of the, of the shepherd sitting out in the, in the Middle Eastern desert. Um, it wouldn't seem that way, but God has said that that is the case, that other creatures' fate is bound up with God's people. So in the life of Israel, the land is included in their covenant with God. It responds to their faithfulness to God or not. And Paul then picks up that theme in the New Testament and sees that the whole groaning creation, what is it waiting for? It is waiting for the revelation of the children of God. Um, for us to become the people who we were created to be, um, that awaits finally the resurrection and new creation to come, but which one would expect creation receives glimpses of, even in the present, when God's people live as the children of God, as restored in the relationship to creation. So human beings come to play this extravagant role in the created world because of God's choice to link the fate of non-human creation to us. Therefore, when we think about the cross and the resurrection, who does Jesus come to save? It is broken sinners, human beings, you and me, who stand exiled from God and in need of reconciliation with God or sins to be forgiven, um, for us to be given new life and in union with Christ to be made who we are created to be. And when that happens, when, when what Christ did in the cross is accomplished, um, it enables all of creation then to participate in that um, reconciliation of all things that are brought about through what Christ has done in Christ's atonement. So I think Christians have a, you know, It's of course, it's a message that is not going to be heard in a secular context exactly, but for our own approach to creation care, to so-called environmental issues, it's actually helpful to, to realize that we have some really important things to say about what it is to be human that actually quite shockingly make a lot of sense of our world today too, where we see we are fully dependent upon creation, affected by it, um, not able to, as much as we try to pretend we're not bound to it or live that way because our technologies and our media can enable us to think that um, we still are bound up with the world and affected by the world connected to it and yet have a unique ability to affect the whole world um, from other creatures uh, even to the atmosphere itself
0: this episode is brought to you by the grace enough podcast Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com.
1: So, in your discussion about your interpretation of creation and creation care within Scripture, um it's a I mean it's fantastic, <laughs> but I have to imagine that there are a variety of other and approaches people have taken in trying to think through what we do with creation and what we what we see in scripture. Are there some interpretations or approaches that you've found particularly problematic in how people look at scripture? In light of
2: this topic yeah and i you know of course probably the things that one finds most problematic are the ones that are nearest to one's own context and so you know having grown up in a in a in north america and in evangelical contexts where i was taught such important and good and true things about god and christ and uh what the gospel involves, um, there were themes that were left out um, that just reflect uh, a variety of things that happened, you know, hundreds of years ago, perhaps, that we've inherited. Um, and what I think was often left out was any attentiveness to the way in which creation is bound up in the story from first to last. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's sad to me is that that lack of attentiveness has, you know, certain theological justifications, and we can look at some biblical texts that perhaps are can seem to support some of that, um, but have often led, in a sense, to, I Wendell Berry, at one point, calls this sort of the chief of worldly conveniences. When you're living by the tithes of the world's most destructive, um, I think he uses the word economy here, but we could just say destructive practices. When you're kind of bound up with them and benefit from them in all sorts of hidden and less hidden ways, it's easy to just go along with the status quo with the culture around you, if you've decided that, well, Christianity is not really about the created world. It's only about this existential relationship that I have with God um, and maybe with my interactions with others. Um, Therefore I can go on and accumulate wealth and not care too much about injustice or how I'm treating the earth because it just doesn't matter to God. So it just, it justifies actually those who would, for selfish ends, um, ultimately destroy the earth upon which, which we depend, it justifies that and enables our participation in that. Um, and of course, one of the things that I um, often encounter, I suppose, sometimes in churches is the notion that while well, creation really doesn't have a future, um, that, well, it's all going to be burned up um, ultimately, and therefore, um, is not something we should be concerned about. Um, and... This is justified by passages like 2 Peter 3, for example, um, that, distru- that describes the radical rupture that there must be if God's kingdom is to come to earth and if sin and evil is to be finally done away with. Um, and that's a radical rupture. It's, it's actually the challenge to the audience in uh, 2 Peter, who are living lives much like the lives perhaps of, of our culture of um, of hedonism. They they have. 2 Peter describes them as those who kind of go to the gym so they can become really good at greed. So it's like they're training in greed. And he uses the word for like athletic training. Um, and I sometimes feel like that's much of what our, our culture would have us do. Like how much, what, what do we need to accumulate lots of things for ourselves? Um, and in 2 Peter, Peter says, because they're saying things go on as they always have. God may have created the world um, may have saved us in Christ, but re- remains now distant and uninvolved, um, and there is no final judgment uh, to be awaited. There is no nothing that's going to change in the future. And against that, 2 Peter wants to emphasize as strongly as possible the radical rupture between this world as it is not constituted and the new creation to come, um, and describes that as the fire of God's judgment, um, in which the day of the Lord comes um with burning of the heavens and the elements and the earth and all that's done on it is then found before God. And that burning up of all of these things is sometimes taken to mean, therefore, the kind of rubbishing of the whole of creation. Um, And before I even address that text, which I think maybe I should, since I brought it up now.
1: (laughs) uh, That was my next question, was what do you say to people who say it's going to be destroyed anyway? (laughs) (laughs) So you're, you're taking the path I was wanting to walk down anyway.
2: Um, And I think one thing I want to say before I even say what I think is happening in this text is, let's say that the New Testament taught that this world was going to be rubbished and thrown out um, at the end. I don't think at all that that's what it it teaches. I'm convinced it doesn't, in fact. Um, But if it did, we still would have the command from the very beginning to care for other creatures, to love God and what God cares for, and to love our neighbors, and our neighbors' lives are—and this perhaps requires some scientific justification—but uh, I don't think it takes a whole lot of work. Are bound up with healthfulness and the flourishing of the whole of creation, um, and so the
1: COVID crisis clearly <laughs> demonstrates that. <laughs> precisely.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you made that link. I—it's—I've been surprised that link has not perhaps been made more often. Actually, that this is <laughs> an, an example of our—the fact we are bound up with other creatures and. What scientists have been telling us for a very long time about our treatment of particular habitats and interactions with them lead to a, an epidemic and a pandemic such as this. And so it just should drive that home for us um, of that need to care well now. So I would want to say, first of all, that you know I could very happily sit with a sister or brother who thinks the world's going to be burned up and destroyed. Um, but perhaps we might end up with the same ethic of creation care. I would hope we would if we actually attended to the rest of that. Um, but nonetheless, um, that would be very strange given what Scripture says about God's delight in the created world from the start to the end. Um, why, for example, in Revelation is the whole of the created world constantly bursting into praise for what God is doing, even as it's being dismantled or fighting back against the evil that has come onto it, unless it sees that its future is bound up with what God is doing, that it participates in the life of the new heavens and new earth, the new creation to come. Um, so, it would be odd if that was the case. Um, but I don't think that that is the case. Um, 2 Peter, which is, I think, probably the, the one text that um, has been taken that way, and understandably, sometimes has been taken that way. Um, it's partly related to what I think is there's a there's a confusion in the Greek manuscripts. You know, we have amazingly um, a diversity of manuscripts for the New Testament, which agree in extraordinary amounts of ways. I always tell my Greek students we really could just at random take any set of manuscripts for the New Testament, um, and our faith would not look any different. Um, So even as we do the important and difficult work of text criticism, um, where there are differences all over the place, we ought to put that in context and recognize Those places where it might actually matter is where our English translators usually give us a footnote, and they tell us, here there is a manuscript difference, and it might actually matter, so you should know about it. Um, But we can be assured about the reliability of the New Testament and what it teaches us. But here is, I think, 2 Peter 3 might be one of the places where it's perhaps the most significant possible difference, and that some of the texts have a variety of ways of saying at the end of that uh, passage that the earth and the works that are done on it, a variety of ways of saying it will be destroyed or will be burned up. Um, That diversity of readings itself is probably a signal to us that something's happened here. There's been a confusion at some point in the manuscript tradition. Um, But one of the earliest and best attested readings, well, one of the, um, the most reliable readings we have, actually, which is what I think reflected in many of our English translations now, says that the earth and the works done on it will be found before God. And that can seem weird, like if the heavens are burning and the elements are being destroyed, what does it mean for the earth to be found before God? Um, But I think we actually have a clue in this picture in the prophets where often we try to hide from God. I mean, we go back to the Garden of Eden for that, but um, in Isaiah, you have people trying to hide under their rocks because we don't want our sin and evil to be exposed um, by the fire of God's judgment, um, to be seen by God. Um, And yet, what Scripture says is that God's Word pierces through that and reveals truth for what it is. Um, And I think Peter is picking up just that theme, that the fire of God's judgment takes away the heavens, and the elements here might actually refer to the heavenly beings, which is what the term stoicheia was often used for. Um, by the second century at least. We don't know for sure by the first in the first century um, that this was burned up and then the earth is found before God. There's nowhere to hide. Um, and it's much like in uh in uh 1 Peter, where it talks about the fire that burns silver and gold, refining it. Um 1 Peter uses the same word there um, uh, so that our works may be found in to result in praise and honor and glory to God. Um, and so you have that same kind of a parallel there in 1 Peter. And then 2 Peter itself, right after this passage about the burning up, or in the same passage about the burning up of the elements and the heavens, says, therefore, seek to be found by him at peace at reine, shalom, in that wholeness of life that God intends. Um, And so I think what we're being told here is that we and the whole of the earth is going to be found before God. And there's a radical rupture, right? We don't want to miss that. That's a whole point of 2 Peter, that there's a radical rupture. But that radical rupture is not inconsistent with what is taught so much more clearly elsewhere in the New Testament about the future of this earth, of this creation, however radically transformed. And so that's where I would want to say To Peter himself sends us back to Romans, or not to Romans, but to Paul. He says, pay attention to what Paul says. I know some of it's hard, (laughs) but stick with it. Um, We go back to Paul in Romans, and here we have a text where, you know, the Reformers have always said we should let Scripture interpret Scripture um, and clear text, interpret more difficult text. Well, Romans 8 is a text where this groaning creation that now groans longs longs for its liberation at the revealing of the children of God. Um, I don't see how you can read that text and not see that, in some form, this created world um, is liberated, is freed at the time of the resurrection, at the redemption of our bodies, um, and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This, this whole world is caught up in God's purposes from start to finish. And so, though it is not necessary for care for creation, it confirms the fact that this world matters in God's sight, um, and from start to finish, and that God's purposes are all-encompassing, and don't leave anything out.
1: So what does it actually look like for us to care for creation and ease the groaning <laughs> of creation or at least not contribute to con- creation's groaning what does what does it what does it really look like for us as believers as well as just hum- i mean human beings but i think particularly for us as believers with all of this theology and and um, biblical narrative behind us, what does that look like?
2: You know, one of the things uh, that when we, especially as we start with the groaning of creation, it probably means being attentive to that in the first instance. Um, and in our time right now, that's going to mean lament. I mean, many of us, I know in my church and perhaps in yours and others, we have at various times during um, COVID uh, crisis, spent time in lament over all that's happening um and that's a that's an appropriate response to a growing creation and to suffering sisters and brothers uh throughout creation um in in the book you mentioned creation care where uh we have uh, some attent- attentiveness to that how does this actually play itself out? I use this acronym AWAKE um, to try to summarize the different ways in which we might respond and live out uh, what God calls us to. Um, In the first instance, it's being attentive to this good world God created. And I really would want to see it not as too often in our culture, we have, and I do this plenty of times, so (laughs) throw out all these data about how how severe the challenges are that we're facing, and then put all this kind of guilt and blame and shame upon ourselves and say, now we need to change something. Um, I think that really what we first of all need to do is to see the gospel as an invitation to see the world as it truly is, um, and to participate in the worship that creation gives to God, and to be attentive to the beauty and goodness of this world that however much it is groaning, still reveals the glory of God, still is a beautiful and wondrous place. It should be out of that place of love and joy that our care for creation um, ultimately comes. Um, So that's the first thing I think is just actually being willing to be attentive. And that means in a very basic way, just in our places, um, being attentive to what is around us, giving ourselves the permission to see the world afresh um, and to glorify God through it. Um, I love what the novelist Evelyn Waugh says about Christian conversion, that it's about stepping across the threshold from, I forget what he says the world is right now, but it's kind of where we don't see things right, but into the real world that God made and then begins the delicious process of exploring it limitlessly. And I love that picture of limitless exploration of God's good world. And it's given to us in scripture, we're given a lens by which to see the world aright. and to embrace it in its goodness, to join in its groaning, and to attend to its challenges as well. So attentiveness also then, of course, does lead to that lament, because if we're truly attentive to our own local places, uh, but also to our sisters and brothers around the world, and to the groaning of creation that is so evident in our day, we are necessarily going to to lament and need to be attentive to what's happening. Um, I'm always so frustrated by the lack of attention sometimes in the media except for kind of dramatic you know overplayed stories often to just the everyday functioning of the world that we depend upon from day to day um, i wish we had an equivalent to the sports page we had a page devoted to you know the earth this week and you know some papers have a little section like that but just to be attentive to the world around us or just to our local place um, so that's the first thing um and i'll I'll carry on with this silly acronym since I (laughs) I used it in the book, the the W for awake is walking. And of course, what I mean by that is just thinking about how we engage with the world around us and our transportation. Um, And we haven't talked about the science of climate change or anything else like that, but I think, um, Obviously, one of the ways we can just live lives of personal virtue that reflect God's purposes for us is by thinking about where we live, how we construct our houses, um, and how we get around. And walking for me has been such a part of my life that I've tried to build into it as much as I can wherever I live that enables me to be more neighborly, connected to my neighbors and to my place and attentive to it, um, as well as. You know, perhaps being good for the climate, just not that it's making any difference by one act, but living a life that is consistent with what I claim to be about. Um, so thinking about transportation in all of its ways. Um, the next day is for activism, and I'm increasingly aware of how necessary this is and how much of an activist I am not. Um, but activism doesn't have to be being out on the street with a placard um, or in a strike, although it may well require that of us at times, um, as it often has for Christians throughout history. Um, I think about Christians addressing a slave trade and their boycotting of, of sugar and their willingness to speak out um, and to be very bold and actually not quite profound sacrifices uh, in their way of life for something that, for example, for someone in England, they've seen very distance from them, the slave trade, and yet they were bound to it through the products they consumed. There's an analogy there with our, our contemporary challenges to the flourishing of life on earth. Um, but I think activism often should begin in the church for those who are Christians. Um, just encourage your pastor, um, or if you're a pastor yourself, to attend to this theme in scripture that we often just miss. Um, to preach on it, uh, to teach on it, and to then let, you know, I think the pastor's first role is to to proclaim the Word of God and to administer the sacraments. Um, But when we proclaim the Word of God, we need to be attentive to what Scripture says and to how it hits our own context. And so we need to be making sure we're doing that in a way that's going to encourage those in our uh, parishes to go out and do all the things they're called to do in all of their different fields in a way that honors God's purposes for the created world. Sometimes maybe they'll be in full-time work, other times just seeing how their own field, their own insight um, can contribute to that. Um, So activism, I think, is necessary for us because the challenges we face uh, with loss of other species and life and climate change require broad changes. And I would hope that Christians would have much more of a voice there. You know, in a way, we've kind of seeded. Um, the solutions to these things to those who often don't identify as followers of Christ, um, because so many Christians, at least in uh, North America, have neglected to even attend to these things. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, so activism, I think, is necessary. The, the last two, I'll, I'll be very brief, are consumerism, rightly spelled wrong, because, of course, we need to <laughs> critique the culture of consumerism. We all are consumers, and the Eucharist reminds us of that week in and week out, but how do we do that wisely and well? And the last letter is E, which is eating, the most basic way in which we are connected to the life of the world around us, and to do that in ways that are in keeping with honoring the life of other creatures and the flourishing of of all of life on Earth.
1: Fascinating. Okay, so just to kind of pull it all together, I'm hearing that creation care is not necessarily environmentalism. That there, though, it's not necessarily. Ne- necessarily distinct. They're definitely in the same conversation. Creation care is a bit more a, of a um, holistic term that it doesn't allow us to be separated from our environment because it's all working together. And it all, it, like you've said it repeatedly, is um, so interdependent and we can't get out of it. <laughs> it is where we are. Um, and we should care for creation above all because the greatest commandments are to love God and love others and that is one of the ways that we do it and the themes for creation care are throughout scripture and particularly just the theme of seeing God's love for his creation and concern for it and um, delight in it throughout and even to the point of coming into it in through the incarnation and with the intention of redeeming it and you know and we believe that it will one day be redeemed, you know, that this whole theme should make our hearts swell with excitement and joy and delight for the creation. And then from that, we work to carry out our responsibilities to care for it, and not just care about it, but care for it. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, like you said, you have that great awake, uh, acronym of different ways that we can do it. So I just want to thank you so much, Jonathan, for your time and for the deep thought that you've put into this. And for even this, this is an act of activism. Look, you're doing <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, <thank>
2: you. <laughs> and
1: really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. And we'd like to thank you who are listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join us next week as we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.